All right. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Romans chapter 14. That's where we're going to be. If you don't have uh, your Bibles, I encourage you to use one that's underneath your seat. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, we do have some Bibles on the back table, so please grab one of those on your way out. That is our gift to you. It's really important that you not just take my word for it, but that you see uh, God's word uh, for yourselves. So as you're turning there, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, just where we're at. So since chapter 12 of Romans, Paul has been talking about what it looks like for Christians to live in the world in relation to God and to one another. And the basis of all of our interactions is love. We're called to love God and to love one another. And what we're seeing as we're studying God's word and what he has to say about love is that this isn't just a fluffy, nice sentiment that you kind of put onto a bumper sticker or knit into a blanket. You kind of call it a day. That's not the kind of love that we're called to. The type of love that we're called to is is a powerful, it is a gritty, it is a, a difficult calling that God himself exemplifies in all of his interactions with us. And this is most prominent uh, in the display of his love on the cross, which is what we really highlighted last week as Jesus sacrificed himself for us. This is what we talked a lot about during Easter, uh, that Jesus' actions are really the height of what love is, and, 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 and that that's really what our love of God and others must be calibrated to. So this is a concept that we have to carry onward as we read the rest of Romans and, and, it, and really all of the rest of Scripture, that godly Christian living at the heart of it all is not simply avoiding sin. Godly Christian living at the heart of it is, is all about loving God and loving one another with all of who we are. And that's what we saw in the second half of Romans 13 last week. And and what we're going to see in chapter 14 this week is Paul applying this love in a very practical circumstance within the Roman church. He's saying, uh, this is what we are called to. Now, this is what it actually looks like for you guys. And Paul answers the question, how do we love one another when we have wildly different opinions sometimes and different convictions about what it actually looks like to live out our faith? How do we love one another in that. And that's what we're going to be tackling this morning. But before we do, please pray with me one more time. Father, you are perfectly patient. God, you bear with us in all of our craziness and all of our individual quirks, God. We acknowledge the fact that you know our hearts. You know what makes our hearts tick. You know what makes them wince in pain. Because you you made our hearts, God, and you hold our hearts in your hands. And so we thank you um, that you have welcomed us into your family even when we were uh, broken, sinful messes, when, when we were at the height of our unsanctifiedness, God, um, still having the habits and the immaturities of our previous lives, God. But we thank you that uh, we now have new life in you. So we pray that you would mature us, God, that you would grow us, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive your word for us this morning, God. May your word just bring about a greater faith in us as we seek to understand you, God, and, and understand your word. And we pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So one of the challenges in Rome 
that, that they were facing as a church is that there were people in the church who had significant disagreements about how to actually live out their faith. And, and one disagreement in particular was very practical. So there's a group of Christians who believed that they could eat anything, including meat. And then there's a group of people who believed that they could uh, only eat vegetables and that they should abstain from meat. Like, this is what it meant to be a faithful Christian, these two different camps. Now, what, what is happening here? Well, Paul is bringing up this idea of differing opinions. You see that right in verse 1. Or more literally in the Greek, the, these are disputable matters that exist within the church which Paul says in verse 1, later on there, to not quarrel over. So these are things that we would say are non-essential to Christian faith and to Christian living. The early reformers called these adiaphora, or matters of indifference, okay? It's important that we understand that this is very different from matters that are undisputable. So for the bulk of Romans, particularly in the first half of the book, Paul lays down doctrines of the faith, and he leverages all of his apostolic authority to say that we must agree uh, and be of one mind and believe these things that he's laying out if we are to call ourselves Christians. So the doctrines of justification, doctrines of salvation, these are not the opinions that Paul is talking about. These are not the adiaphora or the uh, matters of indifference, but they are the essential pillars of the faith that all believers and all churches should believe. And it's these doctrines that Paul and the other apostles not only spent their careers fighting for, uh, but in one way or another, they, they sacrificed their lives in defense of. So we need to understand this before we really start diving into chapter 14, that if someone comes and says, actually, I'm not sure that Jesus is really God, or they say, I know we just had Easter, but I'm not really sure um, that, that Jesus actually rose from the dead. We would not say, okay, cool, that's your opinion. Paul says that we shouldn't quarrel over this, and so how about you believe what you believe, and I'll believe this. That, that's not what's happening in Romans 14. We, we see this explicitly in what Paul tells his disciples, who are fellow pastors of churches. You see this in Titus 2.1. It says, but as for you, this is Paul speaking to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So Paul is not saying that truth is relative or that there is no absolute truth not what Paul is getting at. There certainly is, as he is charging pastors and elders to guard the doctrine, the truth, to teach what is in line with sound doctrine, and to rightly handle the objective truths that are in Scripture. So that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is also not talking about matters of morality with things that are explicitly sinful or harmful. So I feel like I need to make this point because people would use this chapter to justify certain behaviors in their lives. For instance, I think that it's possible that if we call out a brother or a sister and say, hey, I think what you're doing uh, is, is sinful, I, I think it's harmful, and I think for your sake and for the sake of the gospel, I think you should stop. I think you need to repent. The response with an incorrect understanding of Romans chapter 14 might be, okay, that's your opinion, but my opinion is that it's not harmful or sinful. So let's agree to disagree and not quarrel over this because that's what Paul is saying in chapter 14. That's actually not what Paul is saying in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is speaking to morally neutral, uh, non-sinful, non-harmful opinions. Opinions. So what does that look like today? Since 
I think this whole like meat lovers, vegetarian divide in Rome might not fully register with us. Today, this could include things that are often considered traditions or opinions that we have that the Bible is not going to explicitly address all the time. So, for example, um, our traditional opinion that wedding rings are an essential aspect of a uh, wedding ceremony. So, it's really rare for any of us to go to a wedding where there is no exchange of rings. I don't know, has anyone been to a wedding where there is no exchange of rings? It's pretty rare, unheard of, I guess, in, in this crowd of people. There's nobody who raised their hands. The, the, the Bible doesn't say anything about wedding rings. So even like the idea that, oh, you need to spend three months' wages on an engagement ring, like that did not originate in Leviticus. Like that's, there's no biblical basis for that. So I'm sure that you can grab a, a, a group of faithful Christians together and, and you could have a very lively debate on the merits and the values of exchanging rings on the wedding day. Or even more broadly, you could have a conversation about what the ceremony, the wedding ceremony, should look like. Uh, and I think that you'd have some strong opinions on whether or not you should have a huge wedding or you should have a small wedding. Or you should spend like a lot of money and just lavish and bless people. Or you, you should have um, like spend no money and just be really frugal and set yourself up for the future. Or maybe like should you invite all of your friends or maybe you should just have a small ceremony and just elope off somewhere by yourselves. Here's the point. At the end of the day, everything you're talking about is simply an opinion. It is a disputable matter. It is non-essential. Uh, it, it, it is a morally neutral issue, which Paul says, hey, don't waste your time arguing over this one way or another. doesn't mean to not have these conversations, but if you find yourself or others around you starting to like raise their voice, like get worked up over it, like their blood pressure is increasing, and, and you start arguing, defending your position as if all other positions are wrong, like that's quarreling. That's quarreling. And if it is over a morally neutral, non-essential, disputable matter, Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Another more perhaps contentious opinion today would be around alcohol consumption. Alcohol consumption. Uh, depending on where you come from, you or people you might know might have the opinion that alcohol consumption is inherently non-Christian, that if you're a Christian, you should not drink alcohol. This is another example of an opinion. It is a disputable, it is, it is a non-essential matter that, that actually is addressed in Scripture. So while drunkenness is absolutely condemned as sinful, you see this in Ephesians 5.18, alcohol in general is actually literally a picture of God's blessing uh, of us and also our joy in Him. You see this in a lot of different places. One place is in Psalm 23.5. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. The cup is not water. It's not sunny D. It is a cup of wine. Jesus turns water into wine. Jesus institutes the holy sacrament of communion with wine. He's equating his precious blood with the alcoholic fruit of the vine. Paul even prescribes wine to Timothy for his upset tummy. This is in 1 Timothy 5.23. Despite all of these things, there are still those who have a very strong opinion that Christians must abstain from alcohol. And they have their reasons, they have cultural reasons, they have biblical reasons, but at the end of the day, our salvation is not dependent upon whether or not we drink alcohol. It might be a very relevant conversation to have today, and an important one to have. There's a reason why we don't have alcohol in communion, but we have 
grape juice, but it is non-essential to the gospel and to salvation, which is why it's not a part of our membership covenant here at Mercy House, but at other churches, it is. Again, if this is something that leads you to sin, if it's hurting you and others around you, that is a different story and not what Paul is talking about here. So those are just a couple of examples. Here are a few more. Opinions on, on whether or not Christians should wear jewelry or makeup. Uh, opinions about whether or not you should dye your hair or cut it a certain length, whether you're a man or a woman. Uh, opinions about whether or not you should get piercings or tattoos or, or shoot and own guns. Like Christians have opinions on what kinds of movies and TV shows that other Christians should watch or not watch. Or uh, opinions about music that we should listen to. There are other opinions, too, that fall into the non-essential category that, that can be a little bit more theological. So people can have opinions about when Jesus is coming back and what the end of the world is going to look like, what heaven is going to be like, what hell is going to be like, whether or not spiritual gifts are still a thing today or, or if miracles still happen today. Like These are all adiaphora. They are matters of indifference. Doesn't mean they're not important to talk about, but they are morally neutral without salvific consequences. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about them because there like, isn't a right answer. This, so this is not us saying, well, we can never actually know the right answer, so let's just not talk about it. So even Paul is about to weigh in on whether or not he thinks that Christians should be vegetarians or not. But what Paul is saying is that when someone has an opinion that is non-essential, not critical to faith and salvation, then not to fight about it. Instead, welcome that person in. That, that means not forcing them to change their opinion before they hang out with us. That means not excluding them from fellowship, treating them differently, saying like, oh, you're in the conservative camp. Oh, you're in the liberal camp. Not rebuking them, but to receive them as they are with their unnecessarily strong opinions and all. Now, this seems very straightforward and easy, but the problem with this is that those who have a very strong opinion and who fight fiercely for one of these um, uh, non-essential positions um, doesn't actually know that what they're fighting for is non-essential, okay? So all of us in this room right now are like, oh, I'm the strong Christian. I certainly don't believe those things. To them, it is essential. Like, they don't think that their opinion is unnecessarily strong. They might even think that it's not an opinion. It's just a fact, even as I shared some of these examples with you, things that are non-essential a minute ago, I'm positive that we don't agree on all of them. There might be people in this room who have very strong opinions about what to do or what not to do or what to wear or what to eat or what to drink or what to do as Christians. Or you might just think that I'm straight up wrong for these. And the tension in Rome exists because the weaker Christians don't know that they are the weaker Christian. They don't know that what they're fighting for um, as essential to Christian living is actually non-essential, at least not until Paul provides some teaching on the specific opinion. Now, what this shows us is why we should, as Christians, live in Christian community with other people, and how we should generally navigate these situations that might be theologically or philosophically challenging, what we should do is we should be going to wiser, more mature, to use Paul's own words later on in chapter 15, strong Christians, so that they can help us provide clarity and, and wisdom from their understanding of God's word 
and their experiences of, of faithfully following God through many seasons of life. Paul mentions this earlier in Romans uh, chapter 12, verse 16. He says, never be wise in your own sight. And so what we see from this passage is that there are immature, weak Christians in the church right now uh, that have unnecessarily strong and sometimes straight up wrong opinions about things that don't matter very much. And this is perfectly normal, and this is perfectly fine. So uh, just remember, Paul is not rebuking the presence of weakness. He's just helping us acknowledge that this is a reality in the church. And his exhortation, first and foremost, is to receive the weaker Christian with their strong opinions about things that don't matter. Now, if they do have strong opinions or wrong opinions about things that do matter, then it's our responsibility as more mature believers to correct them and to disciple them toward truth and toward godliness that we see in God's word. But if you are a younger believer and you're in this room right now, if, if you're not exactly sure what everything means or, or what it looks like in every instance to live out your life as a Christian, just know that you're very welcome here. You're very welcome here. We're so glad that you're here. And the rest of us just acknowledge that this is what it means to be the church. And it's our joy to help younger Christians grow strong in their faith. So that's what the church exists to do. Now, I want to dive into the text a little bit more here um, and look closely at the issues surrounding the meat lovers and the meat haters because I think if we can understand where they're each coming from and how Paul then handles this topic, then we can kind of take a step back and make some broader applications, all right? So where is this disagreement in the church over uh, whether or not Christ, uh, Christians should eat meat uh, coming from? Where's it coming from? Well, it's not actually very clear in these verses. Paul doesn't really get into the origin of the disagreement. He focuses more on how the church ought to handle the disagreement itself. But here's what we know. There seems to be an opinion held by some that they should not be eating meat but only vegetables, and this is leading to quarreling in the church. People are fighting over it. Uh, the the, the veggie-only people are um, judging those who eat meat, and those who are eating meat are despising the, the people who are not eating meat. And so I, I'm going to just give you four reasons why the early church may have had this disagreement. And I want to see if maybe you, as you're listening to these, can, can relate to any of them. Maybe not about meat and vegetables, but about other things. So number one, people in the church uh, uh, include pagan converts who are extra sensitive. Pagan converts who are extra sensitive. What this means is that the, the people who held this position may have been recent pagan co uh, converts who would have participated in traditional idol worship, which, which would have included a lot of animal sacrifices to false gods. So having been converted out of that world, it's likely that if they were a young Christian, that they might have the extra sensitivity or an aversion to that former life that they came from. Does that make sense? So, which is not necessarily a bad thing. And Paul just said in Romans 13, 12, that the night is far gone, that the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. So what this would have looked like for them very practically is that they would be going down to the market and grabbing some groceries, um, and much of the meat that was being sold in the market would be from animals that were sacrificed to the idols. There was no sign that said, like, unsacrificed meat or sacrificed meat. It was all kind of just jumbled together. And so they would be so averse 
to their old lifestyle, which God had rescued them from, that they would say, you know what, no meat for me. I, I just, I can't do it. it it's, it's too much like my old life. I, I can't eat it, which makes sense. I, I think for some of us here today, we might be holding on to some traditional, conservative opinions, Christian opinions, perhaps with very great conviction, because in part, we are extra sensitive to where we've come from before we were Christians. So some of this is very warranted. If you have come from a background of drug abuse or alcoholism, then you should absolutely be on guard and be wise about the situations and the circumstances that you place yourselves in. If you come from a background of sexual immorality and sexual promiscuity or pornography use and addiction, like we need to be on guard and wise about what we are subjecting ourselves to and the media we consume, the people that we hang out with, and so on. But we need to be careful that our personal caution and our personal convictions based on our personal situation and our personal sensitivities do not extend to those around us who might not have the same past or the same sensitivities. If God has rescued you out of like a really heavy partying scene, it might be, at least for a season, very wise for you to refrain from going to parties or going out to bars. But Paul says in verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let, the one, oh, sorry, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So notice that there's a two-way street there. Others in the church should not despise or rebuke us if we're living out our cautionary convictions, but at the same time, we're not judging others who don't have the same convictions as us. So some of those who abstained from eating meat in Rome could have done so because of a sensitivity carrying over from their former life before they met Christ and before they were born again. Others who abstained could have abstained because they were practicing asceticism. Asceticism. Asceticism is uh, basically the discipline of refraining from pleasures of the world so that you can have a greater spiritual experience. So these are people who would say that, that the physical things in this world, they're a bit of a distraction from the much more important spiritual things that are going on. And so these people would practice extreme self-denial, including but not limited to abstaining from having delicious meat or drinking wine. They'd say that, that distracts us from the things that are more important. Does this exist today? I think so. I think so. The Bible certainly does stress the importance of our spiritual reality in Christ. So it is very possible that some of us weaker Christians might latch onto this while making the mistake of maybe, uh, like unnecessarily downplaying the seemingly non-spiritual things in our lives. People with this framework might think that work or career is irrelevant, that movies or board games are a complete waste of time because they just take away from like the really awesome spiritual things that are going on. These people might spend all their time chasing those spiritual experiences, and we might, feel like, uh, might see them and kind of experience a bit of a disconnection from their physical reality. But the reality is that all good gifts are from the Father above. The blessings that God gives us, like marriage, or our jobs, or rest, or downtime, or movies, or even video games, and yes, even meat and wine, like these can all be worshipfully enjoyed with the heart of thanksgiving to God. Even Jesus, in the garden, he's praying, John 17, I'm sorry, this is the upper room, he's praying that, that we would not be removed from the world, but that we would continue living in it. 
So some of the people in Rome may not have understood that our new spiritual reality in Christ actually redeems our physical reality. It doesn't mean that we need to cast off the physical reality. And perhaps that's some of us today. We might have strong, uh, oftentimes negative opinions about non-spiritual things. Others who refrain from meat may have been just very legalistic. Legalistic. These people would have seen these added restrictions as a way to be more holy or more right with God, that adhering to this self-imposed or this culturally imposed rule contributed somehow to their standing as a Christian. Now, we all know, if we've been following along in Romans, that our standing as Christians is not in our diet. It's not in what clothes we wear or what clothes we don't wear. It's not in what movies we watch or don't watch. Our justification before God is not in anything that we do or refrain from doing, but it is in our faith in Jesus Christ. But for many in Rome and for many of us here today, it might take time for us to understand this and to weed it out of our fallen nature. And Christian maturity includes this process of learning how to live by grace and not by works. So as we mature, some of us here might be weaker and have the belief that being a Christian means having faith in Jesus plus some other discipline or behavior. So Jesus plus staying on top of a Bible reading plan, or Jesus plus donating time or money. And for some of the Christians in Rome, it was Jesus plus abstaining from meat, among other things. But this is a fundamental fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel, which Paul has been laying out in all of Romans. If we have some extra-biblical opinions regarding our standards of behavior or standard of Christian living, we need to be careful that, that they are not the bad fruit of a misunderstanding of the gospel. We need to remember that our salvation is in Christ. It's not in what we do or don't do. It's not in what we eat or don't eat. So the Christian, regardless of maturity level, needs to, we need to always remember this, especially when there are things that we feel that we must do or things that we must not do. We need to ask ourselves, what is driving that compulsion or that discipline? So one more for you. Those who abstain from meat in Rome could have been traditionalist, traditionalists. So it's possible that some who abstain from eating meat did so because that was just their tradition. Uh, Jewish converts would have experienced dietary restrictions and laws from the Bible, and they may have been experiencing that their entire lives. Uh, and, and they would have followed those laws with some pretty strict rigidity. So this behavior could have just carried over, and perhaps not with very much theological conviction or philosophical tradition, but just a cultural tradition that they held on to. Uh, this can certainly be present in us today. So for you... What are some cultural traditions that have been ingrained in you, or just traditions that have been ingrained in you, perhaps from your childhood, perhaps from your parents or your family, perhaps from the church that you grew up in or the youth group that you've been a part of or the campus ministry that you're a part of that, that have now developed into strong opinions about how Christians should live out their faith? For instance, is it still Christmas if you don't have a Christmas tree or give each other presents. Is it? It is, for the record. I think this is where alcohol consumption or views on what, uh, what to watch or what not to watch or what to listen to or what not to listen to can also be birthed. It is the cultural traditions that we participated in since childhood that might form some of 
our strongest opinions that we have regarding things that are adiaphorous, that are non-essential, things of little spiritual consequence, like trees and presents on Christmas, which for the record, I love Christmas. Um, we will have a tree and do presents, but like for the record as well, Christmas is not about trees and presents. It's about Jesus. Now, there are some, uh, these are some of the places where the strong opinion about not eating meat in the Roman church could have come from. And there are also places where some of our very strong opinions can possibly come from. But whether um, that's from a place of sensitivity to our former lives before we met Jesus, or whether it's an over-spiritualization of our experience on earth, maybe it's because we're, we have a very legalistic standpoint, or simply it's just a leftover cultural uh, tradition that we've inherited. Like Regardless of where they've come from, we all have them. We all have strong opinions about things that might not matter very much. And so how do we love other Christians in our lives who have these different and strong opinions? We already saw that Paul says in verse 1 that we are to welcome and not exclude those who are weaker, but Paul gives the Romans more direction. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who, dis- who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we get further clarification on why we should welcome weaker Christians with their strong opinions. And right there at the end of verse 3, it says, because God has welcomed them. So who are you to deny whom God has invited in? It's kind of like going to a wedding, and you make it to the reception, and then you stand at the door, and you're turning away people who are on the, the, on the guest list. Like, God has welcomed the weaker Christian in. He is patient with them. He is gentle with them. And so we, who are created in God's image, we're called to do the same. If indeed God is our father, like father, like children. That's what we're called to do. Now, to those of us who have very strong opinions about things that are not essential, we need to hear verse 4 in particular. Most of the conversations that I have with people who have really strong opinions about things of little consequence, they're, they're usually not arguing to be mean. They are not trying to be a bully. They actually uh, are coming from a place of, of, of caring deeply uh, and have these strong convictions in their hearts. And, and to them, it actually is coming from a place of love that they're trying to argue for their position. But hear what Paul says in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So we have a general rule in our house that we have to finish our meal before we eat dessert. We don't always have dessert. Sometimes we bend this rule a little bit. But in general, that is the opinion of our family that that we live by. Now, I know for a fact that other families don't have this uh, opinion or tradition, or at least they're not very strict with it, which is fine. That's, like, that's not the point I'm trying to make. But here's the thing. Please don't take my children aside and say, actually, mommy and daddy are wrong. You are in America. You can eat dessert whenever you want. You can even eat dessert as the meal itself. It's called donuts and waffles. Like, just do that. Like, that might be your conviction and your opinion, but what Paul is essentially saying here is, keep it to yourself and mind your own business. 
Don't apply that non-essential opinion to those around you, and certainly don't look down and judge people who don't have that same opinion. Why? Because I think you need to look here and see that it is not your job to convict people. It is not your job to convict people. When we do try to convict people, it's at best annoying, and at worst, it is manipulative. It's the job of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of each of us Christians to convict and to transform us. So every person in the church at Rome, every person here today is at a different place in their walk with God. We have such a wide spectrum of spiritual maturity. And and what we're doing when we apply our personal opinions about extra-biblical, non-essential things is we are forcing people to run at the same pace and to be at the same place that we are. But Paul is essentially saying, look, I know you might care for those that you're trying to convince I know that you might want what's best for them, but it is not before you that they will stand or fall. They don't have to answer to you or your standards or your convictions. They will have to answer to God. Jump down to verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we all, we, sorry, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. For those of us with strong opinions and sometimes an uncontrollable desire for everyone around us to feel what we feel or to know what we know or to be convicted about the things that we're convicted about, there's peace here. There's a place for us to take a deep breath, knowing that it's not our job to personally sanctify those around us. And then this can help us to be okay with where people are at on these secondary, non-essential positions, knowing that each person has a personal relationship with God. And you know what? God and them are working that out. But how does this all make sense? Isn't there one standard that we're all measured by? Am I saying that truth is somehow relative to different people and that people with differing opinions can actually both be right at the same time? Look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So Paul brings up another non-essential opinion that the Roman church was dealing with. Some people were, call, were calling uh, Sabbath days and festival days. They were counting them as super holy special days, while other people in the church are saying all days are super holy and special. Again, this is a very secondary issue. It is not worth quarreling over. Like, there's no need to convince one another. Instead, Paul says in the second part of verse 5 there, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Meaning, each person needs to think about the issue. So don't just dismiss it as trivial, but take a minute, and maybe only a few seconds is what it's going to take for you, to determine for yourself, be convinced in your own mind where you stand based on what you know about God, based on what you know in God's word, based on your own personal experiences and based on your own feelings and and convictions and inclinations of your heart, which God has placed there, and then make up your own mind. Some of these things that we need to think about are, okay, if I am to get married, is it important to exchange rings? Figure that out for yourselves. Is it okay for me as a Christian to drink alcohol? 
I need to figure that out between myself and God. Is it okay for me as a Christian to watch a show, like watch The White Lotus, right? Should I be watching that show? If you don't know what that is, you probably shouldn't watch it. I don't know. Don't like, yeah, whatever. I'm going to stay in the text. Is it okay for me as a Christian to like wear what I'm wearing or to pierce my ears or to get a tattoo or eat dessert before I finish my meal? Like all of these things are things that we can have a, a, a conversation with God and to make up our own mind in Christ regarding. Why should we consider these things? Well, there's two reasons that we see in the text. One is that from earlier, at, at we all as individuals, we will need to stand before God and give an account of how we lived our lives based on these convictions. Based on the convictions, not of others, but of the convictions that God has given each and every one of us. And these might be different from one another. They might, in some cases, even be opposing. But your walk with God is not going to be judged based, by, based on my opinions on non-essential things as your pastor. You, you won't be judged by the opinions of your other pastors and what they think, or your teachers or your professors. You will not stand before your parents at the end of time and answer to their expectations, or your friends and their expectations. You will stand before the Lord. And ultimately... We will be measured by our faithfulness to what God has called each of us to. And sometimes he calls us to very different things. Look at verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul is saying it's possible that two people with different opinions, in this case, those who, who think it's okay to eat meat and those who think that it's not okay to eat meat, or those who think that certain days are special and holy, uh, others think that all days are holy and special, that they actually all can honor God as they live out those convictions. This is why it's so important for us to be conscious of what the Lord has put on our hearts, even in the secondary, non-essential aspects of Christian living. And then to be faithful to those convictions because you can honor God in that. So that might mean that you never drink alcohol. It might mean that you never eat meat. It might mean that you never watch certain shows or listen to, to certain music. Or it might mean that you keep your skin clean from tattoos. Like Even if what God is calling us to is different from everyone else around us and what God is calling them to, we can still honor the Lord and worship Him by being obedient and faithful to what he has put on our hearts. In all this, there's something much bigger that's going on than just opinions about things that don't matter. Look at these last verses, and, and we'll finish out for the day. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both, uh, be Lord both of the dead and of the living. See, these aren't trivial matters. Remember the framing of all of this, which we said from the very beginning, is within the context of loving God and loving one another. And Paul isn't just giving us a manual for conflict resolution. He's showing us that how we bear with one another and how we interact with one another in honestly silly matters of what to eat and, and what our favorite day of the week or our favorite holiday is, it can be a way that we love one another like God has loved us. 
and how we live out and, and how we are faithful to the seemingly silly and, and trivial matters that come in the form of opinions and convictions in our hearts, it actually can be a way that we love God as well. So to God, there is nothing silly or trivial, but everything we do, whether we're living or dying, can be done as beautiful worship. It can be faith-building when it's done to honor the Lord. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. There are weak Christians among us, and that's okay. That we okay. There are people in this room and people that we know who are believers who have very strong opinions about things that do not matter, and that's okay. Why is that okay? Because Jesus is ultimately okay with weak Christians. He actually died for weak Christians. Paul says earlier in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Whether or not you have some weirdly strong opinions about how Christians should live their lives right now, if, if you are a Christian, we are all, we were all at one point weak. And here's the main point. We weren't just having strong opinions about non-essential matters. We had strong and wrong opinions about incredibly essential things. So we believed that God didn't exist. We believed that there was nothing wrong with us, that we weren't that sinful. Some of us had very strong opinions about how silly Christianity is and, 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 and had opinions about whether or not Jesus was even a real person or whether or not he was God or whether or not he died for our sins to make us right with God. We probably had the opinion that the Bible was just an old book that was, wasn't really relevant. But even when we were weak, cosmically weak, Christ loved us and he came into the world and bore our sins and he died for us so that we could actually be strong in him as we take communion this morning let's remember our weakness let's remember that no matter how mature or how wise we are that we are still in desperate need of god's grace and mercy and that if it wasn't for what jesus did on the cross for us while we were cosmically weak, still in our spiritual deathbed of weakness, then we wouldn't be alive today. But instead, those of us who have put our faith in Christ are alive and we are strong in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for our church family. We thank you for the little ones and the older ones and everything in between, God. We thank you for blessing us with a family of multiple generations, with lots of experiences, God. Thank you for how you have made this body with different feelings and inclinations and passions and convictions and experiences. And Lord, that is your body. And thank you that we're not all the same drones, but that you have given us a healthy body with different sensitivities to different things. Some of those don't matter, God. But some of them do matter. And so help us as a church mature in uh, just knowing how to discern between the two, God. And I pray that you would give us wisdom uh, when we are strongly, passionately arguing to know whether or not these are things that are worth strongly and passionately arguing over, God. Help us.
us, Lord, uh, not back away from arguing um, and speaking passionately on things that do matter, God. And so when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the doctrines of our faith um, that we see in your word, God, help us to be passionately um, just, just excited to help others understand and know who you are, God. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would mature us, that you would grow us, Lord, and that you would make us strong. And help us, Lord, have the grace to be patient with one another, um, especially those who are weaker and less mature as they grow strong and mature in you, God. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.